scripture texts tonight come from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21, and Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. And you shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. And they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male goats a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day, and you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And in Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if I will ever get to see the Broadway play Hamilton, at least as long as tickets are a gazillion dollars. So I cheated and I read the book. And uh, the book is uh, fascinating because really what it's about is the making of a nation and the guiding principles that have made our nation great. When you go back to the book of Exodus, one of the things that you see is something similar. You see the making of, of a nation. You see God's uh, guiding principles and commands about what he wants his people to be and how they should live so that they don't forget him in a world that worships other gods. So the Old Testament's very relevant for us today. And so one of the things that he does is he gives them the law. Uh, he teaches them how to worship. But he also establishes their calendar. He teaches them to mark time differently than the peoples around them. And one of the reasons why, I think, is because he knows that the way that you mark time, the way that you celebrate festivals and feasts and rest and play and work actually forms your soul and shapes you. There were three main festivals or feasts that Israel was to uh, celebrate. These were called pilgrimage feasts because every Jewish male was supposed, at least in theory, to go to Jerusalem for these three great feasts. The first one was Passover. And that uh, took place in March or April, 
And of course, that reminded Israel of their deliverance from Egypt. Fifty days later, which we just read about, was the Feast of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is the Greek term for Feast of, 50, uh, Feast of Weeks, because there was 50 days. So they called it Pentecost when it was translated into the Greek. And then the third festival was Tabernacles, and that took place in the fall to celebrate the harvest. Now, before we just skip over that, uh, I, I, I just want to stop for a minute and think about how important this was to Israel that they decided to mark time this way, and it became the center of their life of worship. Why would they do that? Well, there's an interesting book. Andrew Smith, one of our members, recommended it to me. It's by a philosopher at Calvin College uh, called James Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. And in one of his chapters, he develops this idea of something that he calls secular liturgies. And what, what, he, what he begins to develop, and, and I won't read too much of it, but it's a really powerful argument. What he begins to argue is that uh, spiritual transformation does not just occur by how we th- what we read and by what we think. He calls that the brain-on-a-stick view of spiritual transformation. He says, actually, there's something else that's very powerful, too, and that is the habits that we cultivate, the practices that we observe, uh, the way we spend our time, and, and things like that. And he says what we don't realize is that our culture has liturgies, too. Our culture has all these practices that shape us, as well as the ones that we have in the church. And he says his favorite example is the mall. Um, and I'll just read a little bit of this. The book is really good. He says, Nobody meets you at the door of the mall and gives you their statement of faith that lists the 16 things the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything. It isn't interested in engaging your intellect. Its targets are lower. But don't think that that means the mall is a neutral space. And don't think that means the mall isn't religious. The mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think. It's very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help the foreign faithful quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by larger pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. As we enter the space, we're ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and challenging new, channeling new seekers. For the seeker, there's a large map, a kind of worship aid, to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction to the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. The sense conveyed is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor of the outside world. The architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary, retreat, escape. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in this place. Then we lose consciousness of time's passing and we lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is still governed by a liturgical festal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and image of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added. 
since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that inspires our desire to be imitators of these exemplars. These mannequins embody for us concrete images of the good life. These are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires. In either case, after time spent focusing on and searching what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of exchange and communion. The point of all this is to try to appreciate how a worldview, he says, is carried in everyday rituals and practices. How do we learn to be consumerists? Not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy. I don't think my way into consumerism. Rather, I'm conscripted into a way of life because I've been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. These tangible, visceral, repeated practices carry a story about human flourishing that we learn in unconscious ways. And then he has this great section on several features of the mall's version of the kingdom. And here's, I won't read much more, but I'm broken, therefore I shop. I shop with others. I shop and shop and shop, and therefore I am. Don't ask, don't tell. So, very interesting book. But I think he makes a, a very good argument that uh, we are formed not just by what we study, but how we act, by the way we spend our time, the way we play together and work together and things like that. And one of the, the, the ways the Lord did that by, was by giving us a calendar to follow. Well, Pentecost was an event when some would say as many as 100,000 Jews would come into Jerusalem for a one-day offering that, if you heard it, included the waving of two loaves of bread because this was when the harvest was coming in. And so when we think about the day of Pentecost, we need to keep in mind this idea that it was like a Nayland Stadium kind of feel with thousands of pilgrims coming with their lambs and their loaves of bread to give thanks to God for the offering, for the harvest. That's what was happening. Now, a little background here. And tonight what I want to do is just give you a little more of a theological background behind this. The rabbis taught, we don't have this in our Old Testament, but this is part of the Mishnah, uh, which is part of the rabbinical teaching on the Old Testament, The rabbis taught that the Torah was given to Israel on the day of Pentecost, the first Pentecost. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's what the the tradition was, and that would have been what Jews would have believed at the time, is that 
50 days after the people of God had gone from Egypt out into the wilderness and Moses received the Torah, that was the first Pentecost. So Pentecost would have meant receiving the law. Now, why does that matter? Because in the Old Covenant, obedience to the law was central to your faith experience. It was how you related to God. And if we could put the first slide up there... um, Let's just think for a moment about the Old Covenant, because if you don't understand the Old Covenant, you don't get Pentecost, okay? So, two verses here. God says right before he gives the Ten Commandments, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, before I read that one, I want to make it clear, there's grace in the Old Testament, right? I mean, Abraham was saved by faith. The pilgrimage, the festivals are about God's gracious provision. God chooses Israel. There's grace in the Old Testament. But there's also a condition. Flip back. Can you flip back one, Rocky? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, you'll be my treasured possession. Okay, now to the next one. If you faithfully obey, being careful to do all his commandments, these blessings shall come upon you. But if you will not obey, then all these curses shall come upon you. So that's that's the old covenant. It's uh, it's an if-then. If you obey, you are blessed. If you disobey, you are cursed. Well, Israel was not able to keep the law. And... Many years later, the prophets begin to long for a day when God would give them a new covenant with a new power to obey. And we see this prophecy in two places particularly. The first is Jeremiah 31. We could have that one, Rocky. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Before you turn it, Rocky. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Now, yes, again, some folks think that the Old Testament doesn't matter. It's not at all what we're saying. The Old Testament matters a lot. God has always saved people through faith. We, We understand that. But I want you to see this The new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's different. It's a different way of relating to God. Covenant 2.0 is not just a little font upgrade. It is a whole new operating system. And I just exhausted all my knowledge of uh, computer (laughs) illustration. So now how does he make, oh, let's keep reading. I will put my law within them. Now, where was the law in the Old Covenant? It was in the temple, in the ark. Um, Now, where's the law in the New Covenant? It's in you. You're You're the temple. That's a big difference, right? That's a really big difference. Now, how does he put uh, 
Oh, I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. That's a beautiful, intimate picture. Especially if you're an Israelite. Here you got your your two loaves of bread and your rams and, and everything else. And you're coming into this temple to offer worship. And you never get anywhere close to the law. Because if you did, you'd be struck dead. The law is not something you have on your iPhone. The law is not something you ever see. Although you might have it memorized, you know, and put on your phylacteries, things like that. But the actual Torah itself you would never see. Now look at the shift. I will write it on their hearts. So we go from external to internal. And what's the result? They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. So there's not some people that get to go into the Holy Holies and some people that don't. Everybody has equal access and everybody now has the opportunity to have an intimate relationship with God and a new sense of forgiveness. Now, how does God write the law on the heart of the believer in the new covenant? Through the Holy Spirit. Next slide, please. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So now let's go back to Acts 2. We've already read it, but let me just read it again. I want you to keep all of this in mind. Pentecost to the first century Jew reminded them of the reception of the Torah. And now they're about to experience the fulfillment of the new covenant and the Torah will be written onto their hearts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, remember, that's not a new name for the Holy Spirit. That's an old Greek name for an old festival. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If, if you uh, heard this or saw this and you were familiar with your, your Torah at all, you would understand exactly what was happening now. You would understand that on the anniversary of the giving of the Torah is the giving of the Spirit, and the Spirit is writing the Torah onto your heart. And that's the new covenant. That is the new covenant. And a massive part of the rest of the, the New Testament is working out the implications of that. Now, there's a, a major concern all the way through the New Testament that I think we need to be concerned about today. And the major concern is this, that even though we live in the New Covenant chronologically, we live after the pouring out of the Spirit and Pentecost on whatever it was, 33, 34 A.D., it is possible practically to still live under the Old Covenant. That may be the greatest 
that may be an overstatement. It's certainly one of the top concerns of the New Testament writers. And if, if we had time tonight, we'd go look at a number of passages. You could argue that the whole book of Hebrews is, is trying to point that out, that we've now entered into a new covenant, don't go back. The whole book of Galatians, Paul is about as uh, furious as he ever gets, saying, why did you go back under the law? The middle section of the book of Romans, chapter 7, Paul goes back and forth about the law and how he tries to keep it, can't keep it, it's killing him, where's the power, Jesus is the power, goes back and forth. And we even have a strange story in Acts 19 that illustrates this, and it's a different situation than one that we're in, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting illustration of how this can happen. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, what were you baptized into then? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, in other words, the Old Covenant, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come, the New Covenant, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and and prophesying. So, what you have there is disciples who were living after the coming of the Spirit, but who not yet understood it or entered into it yet. And, and they, they say, well, what's the Holy Spirit? This remains a problem for the people of God. And I don't know why it is, but there is something hardwired into our flesh that as a default setting of returning to law. I I don't know why. Lately, one of the things that I enjoy studying is comparative religions. It's a fascinating study. A lot of wonderful things you can learn from other religions. A lot of similarities among the religions, more than you'd realize if if you haven't studied it very much. One of the things that I find is different, and I'm not a scholar of all world religions, but what of the ones that I've studied is different is this idea that the God of the covenant is himself living out his will through your life. That's a radical idea. And what I struggle with, and I would think you might struggle with too, is a constant, almost hour-by-hour battle in which I go back and forth from the Old to the New Covenant. Romans 7 is where I live a lot of the time. A lot of time I get to Romans 8. And by the way, if, if you studied this out, Almost every time that a New Testament writer warns about the dangers of going back under the law, the antidote is life in the Spirit. What's right after Romans 7? Romans 8, life in the Spirit. What's right after Galatians 3 and 4 about the perils of the law? Galatians 5, walking in the Spirit. What happens after Acts 19, 1 to 5? Acts 19, 6, be filled with the Spirit. 
the only way you don't go back under the old covenant is life in the spirit. What are some symptoms that you're, you've gone back under the old covenant? You know, that might be something to journal about for you. It might be different for you than it is for me. I can think of a couple uh, that if-then language that we, we saw that was so clear. If, if, if that's kind of the way you relate to God, if-then. That's not new covenant language because of the cross. That's not the cross is not about if then. If if there's a sense of a lack of the Holy Spirit in your heart crying out, Abba Father, of affirming that you are indeed a son or a daughter of God if you don't have that sense of what Ephesians calls the sealing of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit, the comfort of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, if you're, if you're just exhausted most of the time as a Christian, it's just something you're trying to do to work at, if the yoke is hard and not easy, those are signs that you've gone back under the old covenant. So what does Paul say to do? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to tell one story, and then we'll end with a prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, A friend of mine spent a lot of time doing mission work in Romania. Wonderful man, very generous, went over, helped set up medical medical clinics, helped farmers, just did all sorts of things. And early on, when he hadn't had a lot of experience with this kind of work, he made friends with a farmer, an old Romanian farmer, uh, who was having trouble getting his crops in. And he had the, I forget if it was just this old contraption of a tractor, or it might even have been a, a horse and a, uh, a till, because when we first went into Romania there in the early 90s, they were still doing that. So he came back, raised all this money, bought the farmer a brand new tractor. Brand new tractor. And they celebrated, shipped it over there, gave it to him. He came back uh, a year later. The tractor was rusting in the field. And the guy was plowing the field with the old equipment. <laughs> And my friend said, what are you, what are you doing? We, we spent $25,000 on this tractor, and it's sitting rusting in the field. And, and, and the, the guy just explained, I, it just was, it was new. I didn't know how to use it. I just was more comfortable with the old way, and I just let it, let it rust. I think that's sometimes what we do with the old covenant. God has given us this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. But we're more comfortable with works. And so we leave the package out in the rain.